Hello, everybody, and welcome to Faster Masters Rowing Radio Europe Time, where having a rowing coach only makes you better and following a program gives you a true pathway to becoming a confident rower who's respected by your peers. You can become the athlete you want to row with. I'm Rebecca Caro, and I'm joined by Marlene Royal. And today we're going to be talking about race protests and when you can object to something that's happened in a race. So it's important you know your rights. Hey, Marlene. Hello. Hello to our audience. Nice to be with everybody today. That's right. And uh, welcome to anyone who's watching from the Europe time zone. Uh, because once a month, we always broadcast a little earlier so that people in Europe don't have to stay up super late just to catch us live. Race protests. Now, the head of the Charles is obviously a big regatta and anyone who has even thought about competing there probably knows that they have very strict rules about when you are allowed to cross the line of boys or buoys that go down the middle of the course and the fact that you can get penalised by many seconds for just having your hull on the wrong side of the boy line. However, there are also penalties for obstruction if a crew gets in your way, because like any head race, there's highly likely to be overtaking. And there were some incidents that happened that came to our attention. And so we thought it would be worthwhile doing a whole podcast about race protests. Let's start with the basics. Different races in different countries have different rules. There is a rule of racing, which will be issued by the federation in your country. I have to say that the vast majority of those relate to side-by-side uh, -side sprint racing. They don't generally, they, have, they provide a framework for head racing. But head race organizers, any race organizer, actually has a lot of flexibility to make their own local rules. You've experienced this, haven't you, Marlene? Yes, and I think it's going to depend on, on as you said, it depends on the race committee defining um, what they consider interference and how they penalize um, going through the wrong arch of a bridge or crossing buoys or one crew. I mean, interference, I think, is, is quite a big one where penalties can be assessed. But of course, um, you know, judges who are watching buoy lines don't always see all any any interference that could happen on the course. You know, they I mean, there are judges at every buoy, for example, at the head of the Charles, but it doesn't mean that they don't miss some Thing. incidents. Yeah, could be sneezing just at the critical moment. Their eyes go shut. I want to read out a uh, rowing tale. Many of you know that I compile a book called Rowing Tales each year, which is an anthology of stories. And I'm doing the 2022 book right now. And this is an extract from a story submitted by an international umpire about umpiring a race at the Rio Olympics. So this is, you know, the highest level competition there is. It's the Olympic Games. Secondly, this happens to be a final. So this is a story told about the men's coxless four, the men's straight four final. What he writes, the men's four experience proved to be 
unforgettable as an umpire. From about 1,200 metres gone, Great Britain were going to win and Australia was in second, but bronze and fourth place were a different proposition. The Republic of South Africa were in five, challenged by a fast rating Italian crew in sixth. The Italians were rating over 46. They came alongside South Africa at 1,400 metres with their ore tips right on the boy line. South Africa were also right on the opposite boy line, so they were very close together. But he said neither crew transgressed. The distance between their oars must have been no more than 150 millimetres, which is the width of a boy. He writes, I also know that adjudication of any blade clash was my responsibility as the race umpire. Italy rode through South Africa and got the bronze medal. But after the finish line, I needed to give South Africa time to protest before I cleared the race. I purposely counted 60 seconds and with no sign from South Africa, I raised my white flag in relief. I'm not sure whose heart was pumping faster, the rowers or mine. So he obviously believes that there was no interference, but it was a very, very close call. And how interesting. I do actually know some of the rowers who are in that South African crew. And of course, now I'm feeling that I should go and write to them and find out whether they felt they got actually interfered with or whether it was exactly as the umpire said. It was just a very close thing and nothing bad happened. Now, Anne is listening to us. Hi, Anne. First of all, know when to protest. I mean that literally, she says. I had a coach who was coach of her school's boys team and they announced on Monday the 24th of October that he was filing a protest for an interference penalty at the head of the Charles, which had been raced on Sunday. My reply, too bad, appeals closed yesterday evening at 6pm. Well done, Anne. You, you had clearly read the rules of that race. And, and that, that's an important thing. And, you know, of course, in a race like the head of the Charles, um, it's happening over a long course. And, you know, I do know of situations where, um, where one scholar was, was interfered with and pushed off of course, um, on the other side of Anderson Bridge going, going into the buoys. And this wasn't this year. This was, was, was a year in another year. And however, you know, at that, at that point, you also have to say, well, how can I prove that? Because um, it could have been in this particular situation, it could have been a situation that actually cost the scholar that it was interfered with. It actually cost that scholar the, the win of the race. And, and then you have to say, well, you know, did they protest? If they, why didn't they protest? Should they have protest? How do you prove what happened? Um, I think that becomes an issue too, because are they recording every everything? You know, are there cameras on the bridges watching what goes on? So then you say, well, how do you prove that type of a situation where, whereas if you have a, a say a coxed boat, Many coxswains now are wearing GoPros and actually mm. have video footage. So 
you know, if you're if you're a coxswain and you're running your GoPro and you have an, in, an incident of what you believe is an interference or something that really impeded your race, um, you know, having that video might actually be to your benefit if you can demonstrate this is look at the video. This is what happened on the course. You know, if, if they're allowed to use it, you know, um, that's a really good point. One thing, though, that you should realize is that generally speaking, in head races, if you get interfered with, let's say some incident happens and you have to stop or change direction rapidly to avoid a collision, the race umpires will not do anything to your time. They will penalize the other crew. So you might feel you lost five seconds and you, you know, end up not getting a placing because you were four seconds behind another crew. That although you can go for penalizing and complaining, the long and the short of it is that it may not, it may only disbenefit the other crew, which correct is it's still worth doing because you you lodge your protest, but equally it's not they cannot guess how much time they should remove from your actual clocked time in a head. Right. And that, that does make it a little more complicated than our straightaway sprint racing, where if if there is something that is a clear issue, they can decide to rerun the race if they think that it's a major, you know, if it was something major, they can do that. Whereas in a, in a head race, you, you really can't do that. Well, that's an extremely good point because one of the, uh, things that happened at the Lucerne regatta at around um, the same time as Rio was a deemed dead heat in a semi-final. And of course, one of the problems with a dead heat is often the resolution is to re-race. So this was about people qualifying for, you know, for the final. It's important. But if you guys have to go out and re-race, you're going to be super tired the next day or two days later when the finals come because you've expended a lot more energy. And there was a classic case at Henley Royal Regatta where two crews dead heated and they basically were told, right, both of you, you've got 40 minutes. We're going to put you on as the last race of the day as a re-race. But Henley Royal Regatta is an elimination regatta, you know, one crew against one other crew and you know in exactly the same way they have to agree a winner in order to go forward in that competition mm -hmm. format lucerne is a different case and most 2k regatta courses certainly international ones nowadays have to have 10 lanes there's obviously a lane down to the start but they have to have two spares so that if it's windy and there is a wind disadvantage, they can move the racing across one or two lanes so that it's as fair as possible with regards to weather. What that means now, and in fact, FISA have since changed the rules, is they can run seven lane races. So since that time, it's my understanding that they've changed the rules. And if they had had a dead heat in a semi-final, they could have run a seven boat final so that it's fair for everybody in terms of the number of races they've done. And they kind of allow the benefit of the doubt for that dead heating, those two dead heating crews. You don't have to share a lane, but you, you do both get to go into the final, you know, 
and you know do your best see see how you go yes and i mean it's it can be pretty complicated but you know it, i think oftentimes crews don't always understand what their rights are and 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 if you you know if you're a coxswain of a crew um mm -hmm. you know you as a coxswain of a crew you definitely want to be very clear of what the rules of racing are um because oftentimes you might be the one who's actually making making that call to file to file the protest and you know just head racing is really complicated in, in this case and you know if there's a situation that something happens something happens at the start and the crews are started in the wrong order like this isn't your fault and it's mm, the, the the fault of the racing committee but it it does happen and you know and you're and if you're one of the top crews starting and you're going oh my god wait a minute they're starting out of order you mm. well, well you don't have much choice other than to go because you don't you can't stop at the starting line and say gee sorry you know you just started us in the wrong order because you know what the clock the clock is running that's right so you gotta go and yeah you, you've got to go and but you know it just it just proves that um, and and in that case, perhaps there was an interference or or a crew didn't give way. However, as Rebecca said, you know, it's it doesn't it's not going to help your crew. It might penalize the other crew and drop them back, but it doesn't improve, the, unfortunately, the position that you lost. Um, and and that's you know that's really kind of one of those rough rough deals in racing sometimes. And you know, it just shows that you have to be really on your toes and, and you have to expect the unexpected. You know, I know we've talked about this before, but you know, things go wrong on race day all the time, more often, more often than not. And in a head race situation, which, which is a bit more complex in some ways than our, you know, racing in lanes, you've got crews lining up. You've got, you know, some crews are maintaining the margin. Some crews are not maintaining the margin. Um, you might have a starter that gives you the wrong instructions and it becomes a disadvantage. But, you know, the unfortunate thing is, you know, we don't like when things like that happen, but they can happen. And, you know, you don't have much choice once you're on the starting line. You've got to go. You know, you're, you're you have is to running. obey. Yeah, you have to obey the race marshals and the starters. So there was a classic incident at the women's eights head of the river race where a crew uh, which I wasn't in, but I knew them all pretty well, they were late on the start. And the rules of that particular race state that you have to be in your marshalling position. So what they do is they get you to line up, line astern on one side of the river, you know, like cruise 1 to 50, and then the other side is cruise 51 to 100 and so on. And this, they are very strict that you have to be past this particular bridge however many minutes before race time. And this crew was not. And the, they, the marshal pulled them in and said, no, you can't progress. You can't overtake anymore. You've got to just stay here. You're too late to get to your, because I could tell what number they were. Mm -hmm. You're too mm -hmm. late to get to your start position. You're just going to have to start, you know, here. And so they pulled in. And then when that umpire turned his back and went off to do something else, they pulled out again and carried on rowing. And they got to their correct starting point and you know they were they were late but you know they got there before the race started and and they raced but what they didn't know was that that marshal had seen what they'd done 
uh, they disobeyed him and had radioed to race control and disqualified them before the race even started. Oh, dear. Wow. Well, they they didn't do as they were told. Right, right. So, and, yes, I mean, you, you have to say, you know, you, you might... Uh, you know, if a crew, I know an instance in, in the head of the Charles where the crew was told to go to that, to such and such a position, even though it was actually not the correct position that they should have been in for their event starting, but they obeyed the marshal and it, you know, it put them at a disadvantage for the start, for, for starting the race. But as you said, you know, if you don't obey the marshal, then you, you have a, you have a risk of disqualification because they can even if the marshal was wrong and they tell you where to go, you still have to obey them. And you know this is one of those, you know this is one of those fine points that that can really be a rough deal sometimes because if if an official gives you an incorrect what you feel or what would normally be deemed an incorrect instruction you still have to follow that instruction. And, and the, you know, that's the, you know, it, it, most crews, they will, but, you know, it does affect the whole, you know, the whole right. outcome of the race and your mindset to some degree when you're saying, wow, I'm being started and I'm not, our boat is not in the position that we know it should be, but this is where they told us to go. Um, you can sometimes politely question a marshal. So you can say, you put your hand up and say, Marshal or umpire, can I check my understanding? I think I should be doing this. You've told me to do that. You know, and you can be respectful. Yes, absolutely. And you always should be respectful. I mean, I think that that's very important. Or ask the Marshal, you know, we are bow number X and bow number Y is over there. Would you give me permission to move into this into this? position relative to that boat, you know, but don't just go do it on of your own decision, you know, and, and, you know, you do have to be respectful. They're managing sometimes, you know, dozens and dozens of boats in a situation like the head of the Charles and, you know, they're maintaining distance and safety and order and um, discipline. Yeah. 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 So and, Anne says you do need to follow instructions and be polite. I gave one a one minute head of the Charles penalty for unsportsmanlike conduct on the dock, which knocked them out of the medals and yeah. their automatic re-entry. Well, I guess they must have been behaving pretty poorly, Anne, that you felt that you had to do something like that. And you know, rowers can be fantastically arrogant. Uh, you know, I'm I'm holding my hand up here as a person who has done that. And had to, you know, check my own privilege and my own experience um, on occasion. So thank you for, um, yeah. <laughs> she replies, it was a six-page report. <laughs> wow, wow. That was what you said to them or they said to you. Actually, don't answer that. I'm probably too much information. Well, I, I think, but I, I think what, what Anne, Anne brings... Masters rowers are the, they're not the worst, but they can, you know, they can be difficult. But, you know, I, I think I think it brings up a, and brings up a good point. And, you know, I mean, I'll use the head of the Charles as an example, um, you know, but I think this can go for any any other regatta. Um, you can be penalized in the head of the Charles during your warm up if you if you cross the buoys or you interfere with another crew. So, you know, and, and, and as Anne talks talks about, you know, their conduct on the dock and getting, you know, that is all part of the regatta culture and environment and 
Um, I think that sometimes boats can forget that it's not only on the race course, it's what is happening, launching, landing, during the warm-up, obeying, obeying the rules, obeying being on the course or off the course in the right places. So, yes. um, you know, I, I think it's important to think about the whole big picture when, when you're, when a boat is, um, you know, conducting themselves properly on the course. Our sponsor this week is a webinar called The Older Athlete. We have running this on the uh, 8th of November, and it's about showcasing key information to adjust your lifestyle, your nutrition, your training program, and your recovery plan to make the best possible outcomes for your rowing training. We have three guest speakers, Baz Moffat, Joe DeLeo, and Elizabeth Avery. And they're going to talk about things like why midlife is as significant as puberty, our mindset and our relationship with food and exercise, how to mitigate the loss of lean body mass as we age, macro and micronutrient needs for aging bodies, as in you cannot get enough of these from the food you eat, you need to do something more, and the impact of aging on your strength, your mobility, and your recovery rates. You can find the full details at fastermastersrowing.com forward slash our courses. And we very much look forward to seeing you next week for this really, really interesting webinar on the older athlete. Moving back to race protests in straight lane sprint racing, there are a couple of different times in the race where you can protest. A lot of people forget that in many countries, there is a rule that if you have equipment failure in the first 100 meters of the race, as in something significant breaks, you are allowed to protest and they will stop the race, pull you off the course, allow you to repair it and go back and race again. Now, the most prominent edition of this that I saw was when I was commentating on the London Olympics and I was in the BBC studios in London watching the finals. And at the men's lightweight double final, the British double went badly off course in their first few strokes, quite close to the boy line. And they stopped and put their hand up, which is what you do when you protest. In, you put your hand up so that they can see very clearly. And they stopped the race and pulled them back to the start. And they claimed that they had a seat failure. Um, and they were allowed to repair this. And then the race was restarted. So that is one time in a race that things like that can happen. Famously at Henley Royal Regatta, one time a visiting, I think it was a US crew, had a handle snap off an oar. Sadly, it was Henley rules. And it was after the first 100 meters. Oh. And there is a wonderful photograph of the bowman in mid-jump, jumping out of the boat because he figured, I can't row. Therefore, I should, you know, give them the best possible chance. So he jumped, dived right under the water and held his breath for a long time. So the boat had definitely gone past him before he came up. Sadly, they got disqualified because you have to start and end the race with the same number of athletes in the boat. Oh, my gosh. 
<laughs> so, oh. you know, the rules of racing. Yeah. Right. And then Ted Nash, a Ted Nash story, which we spoke a couple of weeks ago about the book of Ted, which Sean Colden has just published, with stories about this uh, much-storied coach in that he had found a woman who was a dwarf and she was prepared to cox his coxed four. And he had read the rules and discovered that the coxswain does not have to steer. They just have to be in the boat. And so he had a coxless four steering rig in this boat and a coxswain who just sat there. How about that? Crazy. But read the rules of racing. I mean, you know, when you're talking millimeters and microbes of a second, Little things can make a difference. I'm not saying that the coxswain has to steer rule is still in place. Right, that so, might not be the best rule, right? But, you know, but still. Rules do change. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of crazy stories out there. I'd love to have people send some of these into us. But, you know. If, if, you, if you are in a sprint race and you do get interfered with, after the finish line, you object by putting your hand up. And you have to make sure that the race umpire has heard you. Some races are umpired from the bank, some from a boat that follows the race. So at the recent Tokyo Olympics, the British crew interfered with the Italian crew in the sprint for the line. And the Italians scraped themselves a bronze medal, which they weren't expecting. And the Brits got fourth. And the Italians could legitimately have protested. Um, because they actually, there was a blade clash. It was all very, very clear on um, television. And they didn't. But thinking about it, I think I can understand why. They got a medal. And as we've said earlier, it wasn't going to affect their time. You know, they overcame the obstruction and they gained a medal. The crew that you know obstructed them didn't get a medal. And the only recompense that they could have had would have been to have got the British crew disqualified, which, given that it wasn't going to change the result, you know, it may not have occurred to them. But also mm -hmm. you think it through and you think, well, what would happen if and then, you know, if you are ever in a situation where you can put a protest in, you can do that. But you do need to think quite carefully. But in straight lane racing, you need to protest very quickly. Uh, immediately you follow, you've crossed the finish line, you need to make it clear that you intend to protest. The paperwork can follow, but if they clear the race and put their white flag up and, you know, how the umpire holds it up, you're, you have far less of a leg to stand on in terms of a protest. Well, I think in a, in a, in a say, a head racing situation like the head of the Charles, if I, I think if it doesn't affect your final position, then you have to question whether it's worth to go through the lengthy process to, to do that. Mm -hmm. Because maybe it, like you said, it, it would disqualify the other crew, but perhaps that wouldn't have overall changed, you know, would it have changed your position? You know, but you, as you said, they won't change your result in any yeah. case. Right. So, but if it were a situation where it was say uh, places four and five and that boat finished ahead of you and they were disqualified that would yeah. that you know that would be a situation when perhaps you you would think twice because that would that would advance you one more place in in the finish order so 
you know, I guess you yeah. do have to, you know, you do have to weigh all those things, which is sometimes hard at the end of a really difficult race when you're, you're tired, you're fatigued, probably kind of emotional. So, you know, it can also be a hard moment to, to file a protest in a situation exactly. like that. Oh, totally. You're, you, you haven't got enough blood going to your brain for one thing. Right. <laughs> We have a second topic today, which is called how to sit on the seat. You may think that this is self-evident. You just sit on the seat. But we had some very interesting discussions in the sculling intensive course that we ran a couple of weeks ago. And it is clear that different people have very different ideas how to sit on a rowing or sculling seat. Marlene, do you want to kick off? Sure. Well, I, I would say... The, you know, the way you sit on your seat is going to largely affect how you're able to set your body angle. And classically, we talk about setting our body angle by being able to rock and hinge at the hip without affecting the spine dramatically. And that really goes back to how you're sitting on the seat. So if you're, if you're sitting on this in the seat in a a neutral position. So we're, we're looking at your pelvis, right? And your pelvis can, you, you know, you can, you can have your pelvis tilted posteriorly to the back, which would be like you're sinking down on your back pockets. And we've talked about this before, or you can be the opposite that you're really shifted forward, which is going to give you a pretty extreme arch in your lower back, which is also not desirable. Um, but if you're looking at a neutral position, you're going to feel like your, your sit bones center themselves into the holes of the seat. And, you know, you want to feel like you're in a pretty neutral, neutral position so that, so that you're able to pivot forward, shift your weight to the front of the seat without having to change the, the position of your spine. And if you're sitting way back on your pockets, you know, and we see, we see a lot of, a lot of older athletes, tend to really sit way back on their pockets. And in order to get body angle, they have to flex through their spine, which is, is pretty hard on your spine. If you consider that's the position, then you're going to drive and, and put, you know, as you apply pressure, you're going to be putting pressure through the spine versus, um, versus le levering that weight. So it is something if you don't have good if you don't have good mobility here, you know, this is, this comes into play of this is, you can work on this on land. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I think a really good, you know, if you want to check a really good exercise is like just sit on the floor with your legs out straight and kind of sit with a neutral, like a, like a, you know, a straight back, but not, not stiff and just, Put your hands on your knees and then little by little, just walk your fingers down your shins and see, see if you can set your body angle without changing the position of your back, that you can do it just, just from rocking forward. It doesn't matter how much body angle, just any amount of body angle, but that's a good way to, to check can, if you can hinge at the hip and work on that and just feel, you know, feel that position on the floor and try to identify, you know, can, can you slip your hands in your back pocket when you're sitting on the floor? Cause if you're, if you're down on your glutes, you know, you're really, you're going to have to get your body angle through curving your back versus being able to, to hinge 
just like we do in, in a lot of weightlifting exercises as well. You know, we want to try to preserve that neutral spine. Totally. I will say in general, as a rule of thumb, when you're in the boat, you want to feel like you're sitting with your weight forward on the seat so that you are, you might want to even just sort of shuffle yourself a little bit so that you can actually feel that like your weight is pushing down on the front wheels of the seat. Um, you can you can do that too much, particularly if you have a double action seat and it'll actually tip, which you don't want. You don't want the back wheels to come out of the slides. Um, but that's the sort of weight that you want to be able to achieve. That's how you want your body mass to be distributed. Remember, the seats sit on slides. The slides sit on little wedges so that the slides are designed to roll down towards the shoes. And if you are leaning too far back, you don't facilitate that movement because your your mass is you know getting in the way of it. So you need to be sitting forward on your seat. The other question I got was if you feel that you're you know not sitting in the right place in your seat and you're particularly when you're in a crew boat, how do you make the adjustment and when? And the person who asked me said, do you just do it, you know, gradually? Do you do a little bit and a little bit and a little bit? And my answer is no. I try and make an adjustment. If I've got to, you know, wriggle my way forwards, I can usually do it by shifting my weight, leaning a little bit to one side and moving the opposite hip, moving the other side, moving the opposite hip. And I can get myself into the right um, weight distribution on the seat within one stroke. And my reasoning is you don't want to be rowing two or three strokes sitting awkwardly because it puts strain on your body. And also in a crew boat, yes, they will notice that, you know, you're shifting your weight and wriggling around and that disrupts them. So my reasoning is that you want as few disrupted strokes as possible. So if you can make your adjustment in one stroke, I usually think that's better. The other thing to check is um, if you have your own boat, make sure that your seat fits you and, um, you can customize your seat and make sure that the holes in your seat are the right diameter to match your sit bones. So one of the, if you have a wooden seat top, one of the advantages of having a wooden seat is that you can sand out the holes in, in the seat oh, yeah. so that if you need to make, if you need to, to like mostly, most seats are generally made for men. Um, and so women have a wider pelvis. So sometimes some of the seats that you get in singles are too narrow for women. Um, but if you have a, if you have a wider, uh, I'm sorry, a wooden seat, you sand out those holes because you want the center of the, the tips of your bones to go down into the center of the holes, ideally. And if it's too narrow, you're going to be, again, you're going to be on one side, you're going to be on the other side. Um, so there is, you know, if, if you have your own boat and your seat doesn't fit you correctly, that can also create a backache fairly easily. But you could look at trying the seat tops of different manufacturers because you can change the top of your seat on a given carriage. So if there is a, a company that makes a little bit wider seat that might fit you better, you can always change that because it's really important that you're comfortable on your seat. Yeah, I believe Durham Boat makes one that has oval holes. Mm -hmm. And I think Felipe now does the same. Uh, and you can just buy a seat top. Um, it's very easy yeah. to just screw it into the undercarriage. So take a look at them and seek advice. Go and try other people's boats. 
Um, you may be able to switch their seat carriage into your boat, but it depends on the track width. So you may not, that may not be an, an easy switch. But yeah, try different ones. I definitely had a time when I've got a new single which um, had a had a carbon seat top, and previously my seat carbon seat top had had glued on top of it a foam pad, so it was part of the seat. And then this new one didn't, and I had a terrible time with um, pinching um, on you know where where your bum joins the top of your thighs, and it was drawing blood, and it was really painful. And so oh, I started yeah. using a, a seat pad all the time, and I mentioned it. To, it was a new boat, so I mentioned it to the person, the agent I bought it off, and they said, you're not the only one. And they went back and they gave me a seat top with a foam pad on it. They realized that they had made some design changes and it it wasn't good. Yeah, I, I actually went when I first got my boat, it had a it had a wooden seat in it, but it was a very narrow. It was a very narrow seat and there was just no way I was fitting in the seat. Um, and I actually went to a boat builder, uh, George Shero, and he actually custom made a seat top for me. And, you know, and I was so I'm still rowing on it today, you know, but I was very thankful for it because there are times when you're you're training a lot or if you coach a lot from your single, you know, there are days when you can spend five or six hours in your boat. Um, so having a seat that's comfortable is can be really important. Carl Douglas also does custom seat tops. And if you want a custom seat top, here is how to do it. What you do is you go to a florist shop and you buy Green Oasis, which is the foam that florists use to put flowers in. Stick They, they come as sort of like brick sizes. So you, you glue a whole load of them together or tape a load of them together and you have to soak them overnight um, so that they are full of water. And then what you do is you just sit on it and it will depress to the shape of your pelvis. And then you send that to Carl Douglas and he will build you a seat top that suits you. Cool. That's cool. wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and honestly, it's it's again one of those customizations that can really make your life so much nicer in the boat. Mm. Um, because sometimes a seat pad is a solution, but sometimes it's not, you know, sometimes yeah. you don't want to add the seat pad and, um, but you know, that that's an individual thing too. Seat pads can work very well for some people, but then some people have the philosophy that they don't want to use a seat pad. They want to be sure that they're just connected directly to the seat. Um, mm. You know, I think it's an individual choice, but, but comfort is very important and, and, and it's going to help you sit with a neutral pelvis and you know quite frankly there are some masters athletes that simply won't be able to achieve a neutral pelvis given you know changes you know just changes in their joints changes in their their spine or bones um but this is where you can do things on land and and you can try to improve that improve that mobility on land because sometimes even if you can improve that awareness a little bit it's still is a has a really positive effect on your technique certainly does now before we go i want to show you a beautiful photograph who's this marlene i don't know it's some girl i know who was out rowing in the fog yesterday morning that was a lovely picture looks like you had really nice flat water as well oh, it, was, it was amazing yes so i also want to acknowledge and thank everybody who supports this podcast if listening today you've got one piece of advice or information that you thought was useful Please join our supporters. Go to fastermastersrowing.com forward slash podcast 
and the uh, payments start at $1 a month. We are grateful to every single one of them. What you get for your donation, apart from the warm, fuzzy feeling, is you get to get into a secret podcast discussion group, which is on the Faster Masters Rowing app. Download the app in the App Store. And when you buy your podcast subscription, we will tell you how to get into the secret group. In the group, we not only discuss little extra things, we also share other bits of coaching information. And you can ask us individual questions, uh, which we wouldn't normally give to members of the public. So thank you to everybody who has been a podcast and continues to be a podcast supporter. We love you guys. So this has been Faster Masters Rowing Radio, the show dedicated to Masters athletes and keeping us all sane when we're out on the water. Fun, fitness and confidence. You can become a student of the sport by buying a Faster Masters Rowing program subscription or maybe one of our webinars like the older athlete one at fastermastersrowing.com. Till next week.